Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of his word this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today to study your word, that as Scripture says, it is in your light that we see light. And Father, it is only as we come to your word that we come to understand who you are, first and foremost, and then we come to understand who we are as uh, creatures created in your image and likeness. As we come to understand who we are, we come to understand the basic problems that face us, the most significant of which is the sin problem. And all other problems flow from that. And therefore, we understand that at the very core, all the problems, challenges, difficulties we face in life ultimately go back to a spiritual problem and a spiritual solution. And that solution always starts at the cross and works itself out in terms of understanding all of the things that the uh, living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed to us through the written word in both the Old and New Testament. Now, Father, we pray as we study today that you challenge us with the principles we study and learn and that we might uh, recognize that we have a choice that we often make daily again and again and again as to whether we will trust in you or trust in something else. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We all face challenges. Every single day we face one challenge or another. They come wrapped up in all kinds of different guises. Uh, We face disappointments. We face adversity. And at other times, we face prosperity and blessing, which brings with it their own uh, set of challenges. Some of these challenges that we face are, are seem very significant. Others don't seem to be very significant at all. But whatever the challenge, whatever the difficulty, whatever the situation, the solution is always found in a foundational reality, and that is God. It doesn't matter what the problem is, how we shape it, how we talk about it. Ultimately, it always goes back to a spiritual problem and a spiritual solution, so that the focal point is always ultimately an issue of trust. Are we going to trust in God and his word on the one hand, or are we going to trust ultimately in our own 
understanding our own experience, our own rationalizations, our trusting in something within the created order. It's always those options. We're going to trust in God the Creator, or we're going to trust in something within the created order, something within His creation. Now, as we come to our study today in 2 Kings 18, verses 17 down through the uh, end of the chapter, down to verse uh, 37, 17 to 37, we see that even when the uh, kingdom of Judah under the leadership of King Hezekiah is faced with what appears to be an insurmountable problem as they're surrounded by the uh, armies of the Assyrians, the army of Sennacherib, as they are cut off and under siege, it would seem that the solution to this problem could be found in uh, maybe in some ally coming to rescue them. Maybe the solution could be found in military technology or some uh, strategy or tactic that somehow surprises or overcomes the enemy. We often look for solutions in the created realm, when it becomes clear, though, in this, in this text, that even though those aspects are important and do play roles, as we see in other situations, other battles, other things of that nature, they do have a role. It's not that we don't believe in tactics or technology or allies or any of those things. But ultimately, the issue must be framed in terms of God, his character, and his plan. That's the foundational issue, and that's what we see as we continue our study here in Second Kings, that uh, the, the kingdom of Judah is faced with this Assyrian crisis. Now, just by way of review, we have to go back and pick up the context. It's so important to understand the emphases within Scripture, and sometimes... As I point out again and again, in English translations, it's easy to miss what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing in the original language because English translators, for whatever reason, will tend to take a word that's uh, repeated again and again within a certain context, and then they will, for uh, uh, for sake of style in English, they will translate it with different English words, and you miss out on the sort of the thread that runs through the text in the original. And one of the key words that we see in this whole passage is the word, uh, is the word trust. This is found in 2 Kings 18, uh, 5. Speaking of King Hezekiah, this is the divine evaluation report on uh, Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Notice it's very specific who his trust is in, not in just some generic form of God, not in religion, not in some sort of subjective, uh, emotional, psychological state that is identified as religious, but in the uh, unique person that was revealed to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that was revealed to the children of Israel objectively on Mount Sinai, that revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, who objectively gave the uh, Torah, the Mosaic Covenant, to uh, to Moses, 
and later gave him the revelation that is incorporated within the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Torah, or in English often uh, the Pentateuch. And this word for trust in the Hebrew is a word that is, it's not quite the same as the as other words that emphasize objective trust. It has to do with more the subjective focus of trust in terms of confidence, in terms of that which makes us feel our, feel secure and that someone has our back, as it were, and someone is completely taking care of us. And so... The focus here is on that that sense of security. Where is Hezekiah's security? And of course, the application that we'll, we're hitting again and again in this passage has to do with where is our security? Where is your security in terms of your life and the challenges that you face in life and that I face in life? The decisions we have to face is our security ultimately in the God of the Bible and his revelation or is our security located in our circumstances, located in our job, located in our income, located in our relationships, located in uh, some aspect of creation, or is our security focused on the Word of God? And for Hezekiah, in terms of a summary of his life, doesn't mean he never failed. We'll see that he does indeed fail and at times in his trust in the Lord but that overall he is a man who trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah. That emphasizes the southern kingdom among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him. He is the, the model of sp- the, the spiritual life and the trust in God during the kingdom of Judah from Rehoboam until its uh, final collapse in 586. Verse 6 uses a parallel form and, and a word that gives us a, a visual image of what trust in the Lord God of Israel is like in the word held fast. He held fast or he clung to the Lord. It's a very strong word. He clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him but kept his commandments. So clinging to the Lord... And trusting in him is equivalent to obeying his commandments. Now, in context here, these commandments or mitzvah relate to the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. But it has a broader application for us because Jesus reiterates the same truth in terms of New Testament revelation, New Testament commandments, when he says, if you love me, you will keep my word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, John 15, John 16, the upper room discourse uh, repeats this principle again and again, just as in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. So the New Testament reiterates that love is not just some sort of ephemeral emotion, but that when we speak of love for God, it is measured with an objective standard in terms of our obedience to him. The word translated hold fast is the Hebrew word dabak, which is used also of the relationship between the man and the woman in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 2, that they, they shall uh, leave mother and father and uh, cling or cleave to one another. And so it has different aspects, but the core meaning of that word is to cling to something, to stick to something, to hold on to something, almost in a desperate sense. You're not going to let go, especially in this context, uh, in relationship, uh, relationship to Hezekiah, relationship to the Lord. Now, as we've seen in the past, what prepared the nation 
for this challenge of the Assyrian army and the Assyrian crisis was their spiritual preparation. When Hezekiah became king, he was devoted to the Lord, so his first act was to uh, cleanse the temple. And the temple, in fact, under, under his evil father's uh, reign, the temple doors had been nailed shut and sealed shut. So he has to open the temple, and then it has to be cleaned out, all the dust, the debris, the uh, detritus that had accumulated through idol worship under his father's reign. All of this had to be cleaned out, physically cleaned out, as well as spiritually cleansed. The priesthood had to be cleansed and had to be uh, had to be brought back and rehabilitated. And so there is a spiritual reformation that occurs among the leadership from the top down, from Hezekiah to the priests and then to the people. And as we studied in the previous chapter, uh, the, this, this had its application in the people in that they just didn't use the words that they were going to devote themselves to God, but they went out and they destroyed uh, the people, along with Hezekiah, destroyed all of the high places, the uh, various temples and worship centers to all of the idols and false uh, false gods that they had been worshiping under previous uh, previous administrations. And so there is a spiritual cleansing of the nation and a rededication of the nation and a reaffirmation of their commitment to obey the uh, Mosaic Covenant that God had entered into uh, with him. And so this lays the foundation uh, some 14 years uh, prior to... Um, 14 years prior to the invasion. Now, the key word, though, that we see here is is going to be this word, uh, batach, to trust in, to feel safe, to be confident uh, in God. To to uh, and so it leads to where we have a we don't have a care because God is the one who. Uh, completely takes care of us. Now, as we went through our study of the passage, we saw that the big threat was the king of Assyria. And the Assyrian, uh, the Assyrians had come down, uh, earlier under, uh, Shalmaneser and Sar- actually it was finished with Sargon II and it destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And we learned that the reason they lost the battle wasn't because of technology. It wasn't because of manpower. It wasn't because they had poor military skills. Uh, 2 Kings 18.12 makes it very clear that the cause was disobedience to God. This is exactly what God had predicted in the Mosaic Covenant. He said, if you obey me, I will bless you in a variety of ways, and they're all spelled out. And if you disobey me, then I will punish you in a variety of ways. And the most extreme of which is that if you are so disobedient and it continues over a lengthy period of time, then I will remove you from the land of blessing. I will remove you from the land of promise and you will be scattered among the nations. And so Second Kings 18.12 tells us that the real problem that faced the northern kingdom that caused their military defeat was a spiritual problem. If we are not right with the Lord and we are not uh, walking and living in terms of his word and applying his word and operating on the promises and principles of his word, then the end result of that life of independence and rebellion is going to be uh, divine discipline and divine punishment. And it, it doesn't have a direct linkage. You're not going to see it coming in terms of if you make uh, one bad decision, then 
then the punishment comes in a in a, a corresponding manner, and so it's it's not something that we can take out and study uh, study empirically, but we know that this is what God has said and what God has promised. So we have to recognize in each life that every problem we face, every challenge, boils down to a spiritual analysis, a spiritual problem, and it begins with a spiritual solution. Now, it may bring in, in that spiritual solution, many other aspects, but that's the foundation. It's going to bring in uh, in different areas, for example, in this problem, it would bring in different areas of military solutions and things like that, perhaps, but, but the core foundation has to be that proper orientation, uh, to God. And so, we're told that this was the problem. Last time I went over a brief history of, uh, of the Assyrian kings, and we're talking about the third period of the Assyrian Empire, known as the Neo-Assyrian period, and we're focused at those last two kings at the bottom of the list, Sargon II, who was the one who uh, led the final defeat of the northern kingdom, and then uh, his son, Sennacherib, who is the king in question in the events in Second Kings uh, chapter 18. And so we read in verse... Uh, Verses 13 and 14, that in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then in verse 14, then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Now turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, what we see taking place here, it's not spelled out in as much detail in this particular text, but that you see the area on the, to the left of the Dead Sea there where you have a shaded area. That covers the area of Jerusalem just south of its Bethlehem uh, down to Hebron. And that is the area that still remains under the control of Hezekiah. Just to the west of there, I have circled the uh, village, the town of Azekah, Further south is Lachish, and then far off to the left is, is Gaza. Those uh, areas um, are, play prominently within the, within the text. It is Lachish that is located approximately 30 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem, where Sennacherib has set up his headquarters. And as he came into this area, he defeats the Philistines. There's going to be a, uh, a movement by the Egyptian army from the southwest up into this area to try to defeat him. And the uh, Egyptian army, which attempts to come to the aid of Hezekiah, is defeated. And so they're going to be no help and no hope. And so the, uh, uh, it is from that, this stronghold in Lachish that we have uh, uh, Sennacherib's headquarters as he uh, challenges Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah, as we're told in, um, in verse 14, has slipped into sin. Instead of trusting in God, as we saw back in verse 5, now he is going to trust in uh, human efforts to solve his problem. He is not going to believe that God can overcome the might of the Assyrian Empire, and so he's going to try to buy off uh, the king of Assyria, and he's going to go back to paying, trying to pay a tribute. Earlier he had revolted against, um, uh, 
against the Assyrians, and he had refused to pay a tribute. And this is one of the reasons that Sennacherib is down in this area, because the Philistines had revolted against him, uh, Hezekiah's revolted against him, these uh, uh, these vassal nations were no longer uh, wanting to pay, uh, pay the tribute uh, to the Assyrians. And what we see is that Hezekiah has basically forgotten uh, what he had demonstrated earlier in terms of trust. Now, we know that this happened historically. I pointed some of this out last time, and I'll review it again uh, uh, briefly as we go through this. We know this because it's attested in historical uh, historical records. And, for example, we have found at Azekah, uh, which is not a, um, which is an archaeological site and a, basically you just have a tell or a mound there now. Uh, we found an inscription. We don't know exactly when it's dated. It's within this, this, uh, time period. And in the Ezekiel inscription, it speaks of the district of Hezekiah of Judah and of the conquest that, uh, took place under, under Sennacherib as he, uh, as he, uh, brought to, brought under his control various uh, towns and cities and villages uh, in Judah. Uh, this is a picture of the tell at Ezekiel. You see it in the distance there. And uh, this is ju- also the site where the Philistine armies had gathered uh, at the time of the battle between David and Goliath. So that this picture is being taken uh, from the vantage point of the Valley of Elah, which is where David uh, David fought Goliath. Now, when we look at this uh, at verse 14, we see how Hezekiah has failed to trust in God, and he's going to buy off uh, the king of uh, buy off uh, Sennacherib with these with the 300 talents of silver and the 30 talents of gold. Now, this amounts to quite a sizable sum. Now, it's not as much as, for example, other references where David. Uh, left a hundred talents of gold to, uh, or a thousand talents of gold to Solomon and uh, th- things of that nature, which shows how the southern kingdom has really deteriorated in terms of their economy because now the kingdom, the total kingdom, which had been under uh, David and Solomon, had uh, been torn apart by the rebellion because of the years of siege from the Assyrians. Uh, their economy had been laid waste. And so this uh, is uh, quite a reduced amount relative to other uh, the mention of other uh, other amounts of gold and silver, but it reflects a tremendous amount for the Judean economy at this particular uh, at this particular time. And so, but what it really represents in terms of paying out that tribute is that Hezekiah has failed to trust in God as his defense. Now, Psalm 144:2 states. Uh, my loving kind, God is speaking here, and he says, My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, or rather this is, um, uh, this is uh, David speaking, I believe. My loving kindness, referring to God as the one who is the source of mercy, and he is uh, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, and the one in whom 
I take refuge who subdues my people under me. So this is a reference to the promise that God is our high tower. He's our fortification. He is our shield. He's the one who protects us. And this was the mark of David. This was the mark of uh, Hezekiah early on in his uh, in his reign, and God had blessed him. He had victory over the uh, Philistines and over a number of other uh, enemies of Israel, and had restored some territory. Uh, excuse me, Judah, and had restored some restored some territory uh, to Judah. But now he is going to trust uh, in money. So this is the first thing that he does wrong: is he's trusting in the wrong thing uh, to secure his uh, deliverance. The uh, three hundred talents of silver equates to about. Four and a half uh, million dollars in today's price, uh, price, today's market. Now, this is uh, just kind of a ballpark figure because we're not sure exactly how much a talent weighed. We have archaeological uh, evidence of talents that weighed somewhere between 65 and um, uh, 65 and 80 pounds. And so uh, this is just working on a general round figure that most uh, scholars use of a little more than 75 pounds uh, per talent. Uh, 11 talents of gold in today's market would be equivalent to about uh, almost $11 uh, million. So this is about $15, $16 million. It could be more, could be a little bit less uh, represent at that time. Now, that's not a lot in terms of a U.S. economy in today's market, but that's a tremendous amount when you think about the small economy of Judah at that particular time in history. And, and, and in order to get this money, we're told that Hezekiah had to strip all of the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars. See, he had just re- redone the temple when he uh, came into power in 715 and he had collected all of the uh, offerings of gold and silver in order to restore the temple to something of its previous glory, but nothing compared to the amount of gold and silver that David had uh, had collected for Solomon to use uh, when the temple was initially built. And so he had, he goes in and he robs God. He steals from God. This is a strong visual uh, reminder and visual statement that when we don't trust in God to deal with the problems of our life, then in essence we are stealing glory from God. We are stealing from him, and as we seek to find the solutions to our problems in something else. So this was the first thing that Hezekiah does that's wrong. Uh, The second thing that shows up in this, in the... uh, uh, response of the uh, the statements of the Rob Shaka is that it, not only was he depending upon gold to buy off Sennacherib, but he was also depending upon Egypt uh, for cavalry and chariots, for horses and chariots to come to his aid. This is indicated down uh, when we get there. We'll see it mentioned in verse 21. And under Tarhaka, the uh, pharaoh at the time, uh, the Egyptians were defeated by Sennacherib, and they were, as, as Sennacherib said, nothing more than a broken reed. You can't depend on man. He who trusts in flesh is doomed to be uh, disappointed. And the third part of his sin, which is mentioned uh, later on in Second Kings chapter 32, is, is pride. He's, he's arrogant. He is... Um, not trusting God, he's trusting in himself, and this is the underlying uh, basis for all sin, is the sin of 
of uh, arrogance. So he robs God, goes into the uh, temple, and in verse 15 we read, So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time he stripped the gold from the doors of the temples of the Lord, from the pillars uh, which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and gave it to the king of Assyria. So that which belongs to God now belongs to Sennacherib. So this is going to put... Jerusalem and Judah and specifically Hezekiah under divine discipline. Now this is where we get into a little bit of a, of a, uh, of a chronological uh, problem in understanding the next couple of chapters because if you turn over to chapter 20, we, in verse 1 we read, in those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. This happens at the same time of the siege. The siege took place over uh, a number of months. And apparently during the time of the siege, after Hezekiah has disobeyed God and he's tried to buy off Sennacherib and he has been trusting in the Egyptians, God brought him down an an illness that threatened his life and he was under the sin and the death. So the events in the first part of chapter 20 actually take place during the siege by the Assyrians. Now, their headquarters was located in Lachish. This is an aerial view of the Tell, and tremendous archaeological discoveries have been made at Lachish. And one of the reasons I like to bring these aspects out when I'm teaching on, especially these Old Testament passages, is not that the, the, not that archaeology proves the Bible, but what we learn again and again and again through archaeology is that nothing that we discover about the ancient world uh, through either written documents or through uh, other other means of study, pottery remains, remains of uh, all kinds of houses and different things like that, nothing has ever been discovered that contradicts the Bible. In fact, what we do discover is that when uh, liberal scholars who, who have rejected the veracity of the Scriptures, rejected the accuracy of the Scriptures, that they have often been proved to be wrong, and we find that the, the, the portrait that is made in the Bible of different people living within certain historical contexts and what it was like, that when we get into uh, archaeological discoveries, we, we find that the Bible gives an accurate depiction of what life was like during those eras. So there is a confirmatory aspect to archaeology. And we find that these events in the siege of Jerusalem uh, was written down on various uh, uh, prisms and steely and other things by Sennacherib, which give confirmation to the story that's written down in Kings. And last time I mentioned a couple of different uh, prisms, for example, the King prism that is located in the British Museum. Uh, and there it speaks about how uh, the same time mentions Hezekiah in this particular paragraph, uh, where the, uh, Sennacherib records that the high officials, the nobles, the peoples of Ekron, which was a Philistine village, who had thrown, uh, who, who had been thrown into iron fetters, who had thrown Patty, their king, into iron fetters, uh, he was, and he was loyal to uh, Syria. They had uh, handed him over to Hezekiah the Judean like an enemy, 
And because of that uh, villainous act they had committed, they became afraid as the Assyrians came in. Uh, they were afraid that Sennacherib would execute his vengeance. It goes on to talk about uh, the battles with the Egyptians and uh, that. And then there was also a Taylor prism that's also located in the British Museum, also speaks of uh, the siege of Jerusalem. And here we have a very uh, well-known, very famous statement made in the first, it's in the first line there that I've highlighted in yellow. Speaking of Hezekiah, Sennacherib said, I enclosed him I, himself, I enclosed in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. And so you will frequently read an allusion to this as um, and, and just about any Bible commentary or study Bible, something like that, that, that Hezekiah was trapped by Sennacherib like a bird in a cage, lifting that word, uh, that phrase directly from uh, this particular prism. Uh, he had, Sennacherib had earlier laid siege to Lachish, which was one of the uh, most difficult uh, battles that, that uh, and dearly won battles uh, in the ancient world. And here is a particular uh, depiction uh, that he had uh, made back in his palace in, uh, in Nineveh. And if you kind of tilt your head a little bit to the left, it's a little dark on the screen, I understand, you can see the angles going up, and these are the ladders that were laid by the Assyrians against the walls of Lachish, and you see them walking up that ladders, those ladders to surmount the walls. And so there was a... Um, uh, there's a tremendous amount of evidence has been discovered at Lachish which supports uh, the biblical uh, description. This is another uh, depiction here. You see a, a siege tower here in this part of the picture. You see a siege tower. You see various uh, uh, ladders over here, siege ladders laid against the wall, and the uh, siege engines going up and uh, as this uh, tower is brought against the wall where the soldiers, and here you have some archers and others who are uh, attacking the city. And so uh, as they attack the, uh, the defenders of the city, eventually uh, they were completely overwhelmed. And as Lachish was destroyed, it sent fear throughout the rest of, of Judea. And one of the reasons is that Lachish, had been designated as one of the defensive fortified cities by um, Rehoboam when he was king as he fortified the borders. Lachish was in an area to the southwest of Jerusalem and provided a defense position against both the Philistines and any Egyptian armies that may come up uh, from the south southwest. And so once this was lost, it became clear that it would not be easy to uh, maintain a defense of, of Jerusalem. And then starting in verse 17, we see the issue develop as the propaganda team sent out by Sennacherib begins to meet with the leaders in Jerusalem. In verse 17, we read, Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rapsaris, and the Rabshakeh from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to to King Hezekiah, and they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which was on the highway to the fuller's field. Now, these three individuals that are 
uh, mentioned here are the the first two are the primary leaders in the uh, uh, of the uh, of the Assyrian army. The Tartan was the supreme commander. He was the general in charge of the army, and he was uh, uh, one of two persons in the Assyrian army with this title who often led, led campaigns on behalf of the emperors. Mentioned other passages such as. Uh, Isaiah 20, verse 1, which refers to the Tartan in charge of the conquest uh, of Ashdod about uh, 10 years earlier. The Rabsaris is a term that refers to the field commander. So he would be the one who was in charge of the operation of the siege and the assault of Jerusalem. And then the Rabshaka was the chief cupbearer. Now, typically the chief cupbearer would not go into battle. This is the same uh, role that Nehemiah plays later on in the uh, Persian Empire. And so it's not simply somebody who comes along and is a food tester or is sort of a glorified butler, but he has a much enlarged role uh, in terms of, of dealing with the military. And in this particular situation, it was probably somebody from a Jewish or uh, northern kingdom background who knew and understood Hebrew uh, and could speak in Hebrew or Aramaic and understood all of the customs. And he's the one who is going to shape the uh, the argument, the propaganda against uh, the Judeans and against Jerusalem, and that's really the, the spiritual meat of this particular passage. But to understand some of these things, we have to look at some of the background. Now, the, the city of Jerusalem at this particular point was considerably larger than the original city of David. Here on the screen, I have for you a, a depiction, a model, an artist's rendition of the, of the original city of David, on the left, you see a valley. This is the Tyropean Valley that eventually was filled in and leveled off, but that is a, uh, an important topographical feature to pay attention to in the description. And then on the right, uh, you have the Kidron Valley, and just off here you have, uh, this is the Kidron Valley that runs up here. It's a little dark on the, on the slide uh, as it comes through the projector. But uh, this is where the spring of Gihon was located, just outside the wall. Now, moving from that picture, remember this is the t uh, temple is up here in the north. And here we have uh, another graphic. Here's the temple up here to the, um, uh, to the north at the, on the Temple Mount. Here's the old city of David, just this little finger coming down this ridge line. Uh, along here to the east, you have the Kidron Valley. This uh, location right here marks the Gihon Spring. And then uh, this line coming right along through here would represent the uh, line of the, of the uh, Tyropean Valley, which by the time of Hezekiah was being filled in. Then uh, this line here, this wall, is a uh, wall that had uh, also been built uh, Earlier, as the city had expanded further to the west, this area is referred to as the Mishnah. And then you have another area going up this hill. You're ascending in elevation over here. And uh, this side over here is marked by the Valley of Hinnom, otherwise known as the Valley, uh, the Valley of Gehenna. So this would represent the size of the city at the time of, uh, 
at the time of Hezekiah when the when, when the Assyrians were attacking. We have also uncovered evidence here of the broad wall, which had closed about 90 acres of land, that area of the Mishnah to the east of the city of David, which had brought the total fortified area of Jerusalem to about 100 and 50, area, uh, 50 acres. So this included the, the Mishnah, where the prophet Huldah lived, as well as the uh, area just to the, uh, just to the west of that. So here's that map again. So it uh, is a remnant of this uh, outer wall here has been, has been discovered. Here's another uh, depiction of it in the upper left-hand corner. The right-hand picture is a picture of Hezekiah's tunnel. This was built at this time by Hezekiah as he saw the danger of this assault by the, uh, by the Assyrians. The Gihon Spring was outside of the city walls. Well, if you're under siege, you just don't want your water source to be uh, outside the city and available to the enemy so they can cut you off from your water source. And so he... Uh, built a tunnel that's uh, 533 uh, meters long and that runs underground. And when they, uh, they, they built this tunnel, they set uh, two teams at work to chisel out the tunnel, and they started at opposite sides, and they worked towards one another. Now, you can understand what a feat that must have been in the ancient world without a compass or without GPS to make sure that they would uh, uh, meet and not uh, miss each other. And uh, so they, they came together. When you go through the tunnel, uh, you realize that as they got close to each other, one team was a little higher than the other, so they had to uh, go down. The other team had to come up, and so you get some really uh, high ceilings in the midst of the in the midst of the tunnel. Other areas, it's not quite so uh, so high. There's a few places where you have to uh, sort of bend down as you go through the tunnel. And there's a place, place a couple of places where, especially in the rainy season, when it might get up to uh, might get up to your armpits. And uh, there you have the other end of the tunnel, and one of our deacons coming out after. Uh, that's always sort of one of the high points is when we get to go to. Uh, walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. Now, in verse 18, we read that when they had called to the king, uh, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, that's the household of the king, Shebna, the scribe, and uh, Johah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So this would be members of the king's cabinet. These are the closest advisors uh, to the king. And then the Rabshaka begins to address, the, address them, and he says, uh, this is the message you need to give Hezekiah. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? Now, the word confidence is the noun form of batach, and then the word translated trust is our verb batach again. In five verses, we have, I mean, in four verses, we have five references to the word batak, five uses of the word batak, which tells us that the focal point of this whole passage is on trust. Uh, the message to Hezekiah is, what are you really trusting in? You, you're, you're, you're faced with this insurmountable problem. You're faced with certain defeat. What are you really trusting in? And so when the uh, messengers of Sennacherib come, they focus the attention spiritually. 
the issue isn't on technology. He'll bring that in, but ultimately the challenge is, are you really going to trust in God to solve your problem? Uh, God, none of the other gods have helped. Why are you trusting in your God? Then verse 20, we read that he goes on to say, uh, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they're mere words. In whom do you trust? There's our word again, batak. What's your confidence in that you rebel against me, says Sennacherib? And he goes on, uh, verse 21. Now look, you're trusting, there's our word again, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt. Don't you know we've already defeated their army? You're not going to uh, get anywhere uh, with them. Uh, you're trusting in this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leads, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. And then he, go, he raises another argument. But if you say to me, well, we're going to trust in the Lord our God. And so the Rabshaka says, is it not God who, notice the generic, he's going to shift over to more of a generic use because he's misidentifying God, says, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah in Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar uh, in Jerusalem. See, Hezekiah took down all the altars to God, and who's going to deliver you? That help really doesn't uh, work at all. We have two sections in this chapter. Uh, in terms of the discussion and the uh, propaganda challenge to the Judeans. The first is the private section at the beginning, which goes down uh, until they, dis- they begin to speak to uh, all of the people, beginning in about verse, um, uh, verse uh, 20, uh, 26. And so this private sec- section is just addressed personally to these uh, cabinet members who have come out uh, and for, for Hezekiah, and then it shifts to a public section, and in the public section, then the people are going to be dressed again. Now, in the private section, there's three basic questions that are raised. First of all, what is this, what's the basis for your confidence? What is this trust that you have? The second question that's raised is, are you going to trust in Egypt? The third question is, are you going to trust in this God that, um, uh, you're really going to trust in God? All the other, none of the other gods have managed to protect anybody. Why are you going to trust in this God? And by the way, uh, didn't Hezekiah wipe out all of his temples and all of his worship centers? So there's, there's no really basis to expect aid, uh, aid from God. And so in these verses 19 through 22, the Rabshaka lays out his particular case. And his case, I want you to notice this. His case is no different than the case of Satan in Genesis chapter 3. This is the primary challenge for every one of us. Did God really say this? Did God really mean that? That's what Satan said to to Eve after um, God had created uh, the garden for them to live in and provided everything for them with only one prohibition, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan came along and he began to question God's word. Do you really have a basis for trusting God? How do you know you can trust God? How do you know he has your uh, best interests in mind? Maybe he left something out. Maybe there's something he just really doesn't want you to enjoy, and he's keeping that uh, from you. Maybe there really is a better way, and you can take care of yourself without trusting in God. And so he he uses this, uh, he, he spins his arguments 
uh, in terms of empiricism. He says, see, see, you just really can't trust in any of these other gods. This is what he develops in the second part of this section from 27 down to uh, uh, 30, uh, down to about 34. He says, where are the gods of these other nations in verse 34, of Hamath and Orpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim and Hina and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? No, see, God didn't do anything for the northern kingdom. He's not going to do anything for you uh, either. And then he raises a uh, military argument. Verse 23, he says, Now therefore I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, if you will just surrender and give your loyalty to us, then um, uh, we'll give you, uh, you want to fight? We'll give you 2,000 horses, uh, which would go with the chariots. We'll let you develop a little, uh, a little light cavalry with the chariots, and if you're able to uh, put riders on them, knowing, of course, he knew full well that nobody uh, in the uh, uh, Judah army, uh, in Hezekiah's army could uh, field a chariot corps, um, and then he boasts a little bit. He says, how will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servant? We can take the worst uh, captain in the Assyrian army, and even if we give you uh, 2,000 horses and so you can put together a chariot corps, you're still not good enough uh, to beat him. Uh, you can't have confidence in your own ability. And so verse 25, he wraps up his argument. And he says, have I now come up with... Um, uh, without the Lord against this place to destroy it. This is his final little twist. He says, no, God actually told us to do this. See, he, 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 he co-ops the religious argument and says, we're doing God's work. We're going to destroy you. God wants us here to destroy you. You can't trust in him um, at all. And so he's, he uses all of these various arguments to try to challenge the issue of what, what are they trusting in. Now, when we come down to verses 29 to 31 and, and, and following, we see that he, he builds the argument even more when he addresses all of the people. He says, first of all, don't let, in verse 29, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he won't be able to deliver you from the hand of Sennacherib. Uh, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. See, there's that word again, batak, to trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will deliver us, and this city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Verse 31, do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. And now the king of Assyria starts making promises. If you just make peace with us, then everybody can come out. Everybody will be given land. Everybody will be... It sounds like the modern promises of socialistic utopian governments that if you just uh, give up all of your freedom, then we will take care of you. We will give everybody uh, enough land and enough money, uh, social security, uh, universal health care, everything else to make sure that you're all taken care of, and uh, we will be the ones who provide you with security. That's the challenge. Is your security in God and the truth of Scripture, or is your security in man, in government programs, in uh, the various uh, human institutions? And then in verses uh, 32 and 35, he continues to make this same claim. Where were these other gods? And so the question comes down to this. How do we know we can trust God? How do we know we can trust his word? And there are two things, three things I want to point out in closing that are important for answering the question, how do we know we can really believe the Bible and that we can 
really trust God. And the first way we know that we can trust God, the first way we know that God has actually spoken and that we can trust him is because the voice of God comes with an inherent authority. It comes with an inherent authority, what theologians call a self-authenticating voice. All kinds of people can come and speak with a voice that sounds like it might be God and people are deceived. But when God truly speaks and you look at the responses in the scripture, uh, people don't question people. Well, wait a minute, God. You don't see Isaiah falling down before the throne of God. Uh, you don't see prior to that him saying, well, God, let's prove to me you're God. Prove to me that's really your voice. As soon as Isaiah comes into the presence of God, he knows that is the holy, righteous God, and he can do nothing else other than prostrate himself before the throne of God. When God appears to Moses at the burning bush, God doesn't have to first prove that he's God to Moses. It is self-authenticating. But unless somebody think, well, you know, that kind of sounds like mysticism. There's all kinds of people who come out and say that God has spoken to them. And the Bible is a realistic revelation, and God recognizes there are all kinds of people who will come along and claim that they are speaking for God. And so under points two and three, we have the two tests that God gives in the Old Testament for validating uh, his revelation. The first is given in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. God says, If there arises among you a prophet, a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder. God doesn't question that the sign, the miracle, the wonder didn't take place. God says, okay, I'm going to, for the sake of argument, say this prophet shows up, this miracle worker shows up, he heals people, he does all kinds of things, uh, and, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. See, this is the message. The message is different from the miracle. The miracles in Scripture are designed to simply authenticate the messenger. But if you have the wrong message, then it is a false uh, miracle worker. And so the first test is a test of consistency with the rest of Scripture. God does not contradict himself. God is not going to send a messenger to you one day that says there's only one God, worship him, and then send you another messenger uh, 15 centuries later and say, oh, you can worship other gods. There is only one consistent message in Scripture, and if the message isn't the same, then it doesn't matter what confirmation, what miracles uh, this uh, prophet has, uh, the message needs to be rejected. So the result of that is that uh, no matter what the miracle worker does, no matter what his personality is, no matter what things he claims to have taken, no matter uh, what you think of him in terms of his speaking uh, as a prophet, if it's not consistent with the rest of accepted scripture, then reject him and he should be put to death. This is very serious because God recognizes that a culture that loses integrity and truth will implode and destroy itself, which is where we are in our culture. That's why the death penalty is imposed, because the loss of truth is so critical to the survival of a culture. In Deuteronomy 18, 18 and following, we have the second test, which is the test of 
uh, that of the prophet that it actually comes to pass all of the time. The, the test of prophetic fulfillment. Verse 18, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, speaking to Moses, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. That is a reference to the ultimate prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it shall come that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, well, how shall we know the word which the Lord has, has not spoken? That's the question we're asking. How do we know that this is really God's word? Uh, the, the answer is given in verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. And so what we see in these two tests are the foundation for validating the word of God. You, we do not prove the word of God from reason or experience, but God recognizes that in order to validate that it is from him, that we do go to reason and experience in order to see that the word of God is the word of God. And so next time, we're going to come back and look at the question, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God and not just the word of man? And we will develop out these two tests, the tests of consistency and the tests of 100% fulfillment of, of prophecy. And the focal point, again, is always on understanding that the Word of God speaks to man, speaks of our condition, and speaks of ultimate salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this morning, to be challenged by these things, to recognize that that your Word comes with the self-authentication of your voice, but it also fits within the real world, and there is evidence to show that this is your word, that this is not just the word of man, that it is confirmed through archaeology, it's confirmed through history, it's confirmed through its internal consistency, it's confirmed through any number of factors as we see a prophecy that has, was to have been fulfilled already has been fulfilled in an absolute and literal uh, manner. And, of course, everything focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who came uh, from you to enter into human history, to take on humanity, to go to the cross, and to die there as our substitute. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would do so, that they would take this opportunity to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in him as their only hope, their only salvation, and not to trust in anything else. Uh, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.